Let's open our Bibles now to Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5, and as you're opening to that passage, I'll remind you of a rhetorical question that the psalmist asked in Psalm 119.9. He says, how can a young man keep his way pure? The answer that he gives to his own rhetorical question is, by keeping it according to thy word. While the, the, the rhetorical question in its setting is specific to young men, the answer that he gives is obviously applicable to all people, to all those who are believers in the Old Testament sense in Yahweh and New Testament sense specifically in Jesus Christ. But keeping one's way pure, the way that that connects with our passage tonight, keeping one's way pure is one and the same with Paul's admonition to walk wisely, which is found in Ephesians chapter 5, verses 15 through chapter 6, verse 9. If we are to walk wisely, we must live our lives in accordance with what we know of God's gracious self-disclosure or God's word. In other words, we must apply knowledge, for that's what wisdom is. Wisdom is the application of knowledge to a particular circumstance that we find in our lives. So we've been studying this idea of walking wisely in chapter 5, verse 15, through chapter 6, verse 9. And one of the things that we came upon right away was this idea of the filling by means of the Holy Spirit. In order for us to walk wisely or to live wisely, if you prefer, or to to use the psalmist terminology, to keep our way pure, we need to do it according to his word. If we're going to do it according to his word, we have to have help. We have to have enablement. We have to have the influence of the Holy Spirit, the empowerment of the Holy Spirit. And so we studied what that meant to be filled up by means of the Holy Spirit in chapter 5, verse 18, remembering that we went back to chapter 3, verses 14 through 19, to find out what the content of that filling was, that we're filled up to all the fullness of God. The result of the filling ministry of the Holy Spirit was then represented by four things, actually five participles, if, if you like to hear about parts of speech, but four, four actual commands. The first one was speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. The second was singing and making melody with our hearts to God. The third was always giving thanks in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the fourth was submitting to one another in the fear of Christ. Now, the, the way this is going to be outlined, you have these three participles in the beginning, speaking to one another, sing, to, speaking, singing making melody to God, always giving thanks. And then the fourth one, submitting to one another, that fourth participle, or that fourth command, in the form of a participle, is now going to be expanded on in the rest of the section. Okay, so what we're, what we're doing from now till chapter 6, verse 9, we're expanding upon that idea of submitting to one another in the fear of Christ. So with that in mind, there are three realms, and these have to be interpersonal realms, three realms of submission with which we're supposed to submit to one another. Now, that doesn't mean that within these realms, husbands submit to wives and wives submit to husbands. Within the realm of, of the family, parents submit to their children and children submit to their parents. Or within the realm of the workplace, employers submit to their employees and, and vice versa. That's ridiculous. That's no submission at all. So what, what we have here, rather than that, that silly idea in verse 21 that you even hear in marriage ceremonies now, they'll tell the husband to, to submit himself to the wife and the wife to submit herself to the husband. 
just because they want to be so politically correct that none of the 20-something females in the audience are going to get mad and throw something at them or, or scowl at them and say, I'm never coming to your church, or how could you be such a Neanderthal? No, that's not what this means at all. This phrase is being unpacked in the passage that we started to study last week and that we'll, we'll extend to here. So when we talk about submitting to one another, what Paul is speaking about is submitting in that particular category that you find yourself. Husbands to, or wives to husbands, children to parents, and slaves to masters, or in the contemporary setting, employees to employers. Now, in each of these cases, we're going to find that there is also instruction for the individual who's in a position of leadership. So we have instruction for the one to do the submitting, and then a reason why they submit, should submit, and then we have instruction for the one who's in leadership in that particular category as to how their behavior should be. Wives submit and respect their husbands, but husbands love and sacrifice for their wives. Children obey their fathers, actually by, in terms of context, mothers as well. And then fathers and mothers refrain from provoking to anger their children. And they also have the positive side of that. They provide discipline and instruction to their children. So you see there's, a, there's the responsibility of the one who is doing the submitting, but there's also the responsibility of the one that's doing the leading. And then we will see later on that slaves or empo- employees are to obey their masters, but the employers or the masters in the, in the case of the time in which Paul was writing were to treat them well because God's watching. Because they're people for whom Christ also died. Because they have the image of God just like you do. So you see, there's going to be a responsibility of the one who's doing the submitting and the responsibility of the one who is doing the leading. Now, significantly more space is going to be devoted to this first section about wives submitting to their husbands' leadership and respecting them and husbands loving and sacrificing themselves for their wives. Perhaps... Because this tends to be a problem. A lot of Christian marriages. Not non-Christian too, but we're talking about Christian marriages in this section. Because I believe that what Paul says about leadership in this first section overflows to leadership of any kind. To leadership of any kind. With leadership comes responsibility. And we can see this, I think, from the negative. Certainly we all can think of great leaders. And I hope when you think of a great leader, one of the things that you consider about them or that you love about them is that they were selfless in their leadership. But if we consider some of the worst leaders in history, we'll inevitably find that they are self-serving. When they have authority, they will be self-serving, using their position of authority to advance themselves or to ingratiate their own desires with little or no regard for the long-term consequences of their actions upon the one that they lead. Now, we see this in marriage. It's easy to identify a bad husband because the bad husband is willingly assumes the authority of the leadership of the marriage relationship but wants nothing to do with selfless sacrifice. So we would immediately identify that person as a bad leader in the home. But that, that goes for people in, in the military. It goes for people in politics. It goes for people in the classroom as well. You can tell a bad leader because they're selfish. First and foremost, they're selfish rather than selfless. It's interesting to me that one of the most vile human beings who's ever lived, as well as one of the worst leaders who's ever lived, happened to be the Roman emperor at the time that Paul writes these words. That's Nero. If there ever was a selfish 
vile, evil individual, it was Nero. He was in it all for himself. I mean, just all for himself. Finally, so much so, he had oppressed the people so much that he was effectively taken out by his own people. So we'll see a model of good leadership as we go through this first section, husbands and wives. So verse 22, wives, be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord. Now, your Bibles probably have an italics, a set of italics in the words be subject to, and I'll, or be, at least be subject, and I will tell you why in just a moment. The verse actually says literally, if we just did it as it is in the Greek text, women to your own men as to the Lord. See, see there's no verb in verse 22. In order to get the verb, we've got to go back to verse 21. And the verb in verse 21, the subject of all the discussion, the subject of so much ink that has been spilled with regard to this subject, is, is the verb hupotasso, H-U-P-O-T-A-S-S-O. -S -S it's a very, very important word in the Greek language, especially in New Testament Greek, hupotasso, H-U-P-O-T-A-S-S-O. -S -S but before we discuss the verb itself, which is central to this discussion, I mean, that's where, really what, where it all is. What does it mean to submit? I need to make a couple of observations about the rest of the sentence first, and then we're going to come back and look at the word to submit, because what happens so often when people do exposition of this particular verse, we, and I include myself in that category, we get so wrapped up in hupotasso, in the meaning of submitting, and the responsibility of, each, of persons in each of these categories to submit that we miss some very, very important details about the other words in this sentence. And these details are missed, and cults begin because of it. Or extreme cases of misapplication of the theology begin. So let's look at some of the other factors in this verse first, and then we'll come back as we close, or as we get close to closing, and we'll look at what hupotasso really means. First of all, the noun women here can refer to women in general, but in the context, it's speaking to wives. In the same way, the word men can refer to men in general, but in the context here, it's referring to husbands. That's why I assume none of your Bible says, women, be subject to your own men as to the Lord. You know, that's, but, but that's actually what it says. Because you see, in, in uh, ancient Greek, or even in the Koine Greek, they didn't have two different words to describe that. One example of it is when, uh, when Jesus says to his mother on the cross, woman, behold thy son. You know, sometimes we, we think, uh, sometimes some have thought, and it would be in significant error, uh, that Jesus was somehow being disrespectful to his mother by calling her woman. Now, had I called my mother woman when I was growing up, I'd have been bent over the couch, the belt would have come off, and either she would have whooped me or her dad would have whooped me when he got home. Um, David tried calling my youngest son. David tried and called. Thought it'd be funny to call his mom Cindy, uh, woman, one time, um, just to see how far he could get. And I, I guarantee you, he didn't get very far. Um, and he never did it again. So, it, see, in, in our, with our culture, that would be something of a negative. But in the culture in which Jesus lived, to call his mother Gune would have been what an adult son called his mother. So it's, it's, it was not disrespectful whatsoever. They had a word for uh, that we would maybe translate mommy, something like that. But you're not going to have a 33-year-old Lord of the Universe 
using that word with, with, uh, with Mary at that particular time. He, it was totally appropriate, what he said. So anyway, I just bring that up uh, to let you know the word, the word uh, literally is women, but it is rightly translated wives. Now, I want you to notice here, the wives are to be subject to their own husbands, not to men in general, okay, but to their own husbands. Now, the reason I bring this up, all joking aside, no joking, there are cults that have grossly abused this. And that's where you find this abuse, within cults. You'll get these compounds going, and we've had them even here in Texas, where, where they, the women will be told that they're to be subject to all the men, or at least a group of men, or perhaps the men who are in the leadership over that particular cult. But this verse doesn't say that. Women are to be subject to their own husbands, not to men in general. This is, this is firmly in the context of the marriage relationship. Um, and, and to give the idea that women are to be subject to men in general is thoroughly unbiblical. But then most of the things that cultists do are thoroughly unbiblical. That's why we consider them cultists. Now, not, often it's not everything that they do. There's a little bit of truth that they can point to, but most of it is uh, total nonsense. Now, the second item that should be noted here is the phrase, as to the Lord. There's been, a lot, there's been some discussion historically as to who is being referenced by this term Lord. Now, the, the, ter the word Lord in my Bible is capitalized. It should be in yours as well. But there are no capital letters in the Greek text, so there, there has been discussion as to exactly who's being referred to by this term kurios. One of the greatest theologians of, a, of his period of time in history was a man named Thomas Aquinas. The Protestants claim him, Catholics claim him as, as a, their theologian, and he's, he certainly was a heavyweight uh, fellow. But Thomas Aquinas held that the term Lord here should be a little L and referred back to husbands. And, and I don't know if he was married or not, but if he was, he probably didn't stay married long if he was doing this. <laughs> no, I'm just joking. But, but uh, he took this to mean that Wives were to be subject, to, or rather, to subject themselves to their husbands as a lord. Okay, and in doing so, he references First Peter chapter three verse six, where Sarah calls Abraham Lord with a little L. This Sarah, uh, thus this Sarah, First Peter says, this Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you have become her children if you do what is right without being frightened by any fear. So Aquinas who was, you know, I mean, the theologian of probably the two or three hundred years before him and the two or three hundred years after him. He's the name that we'll remember, but he took it that way. But this is one place where Aquinas, although an expert in New Testament Greek, to be sure, uh, was wrong because the grammatical construction makes that interpretation, if not impossible, at least extremely unlikely. And so even someone like Aquinas can make a, a fairly obvious error with the Greek text. Now, most people that followed him haven't made that same error, and I'm not saying Aquinas wasn't a brilliant man. He certainly was, but this one place, he, he got it wrong. And we'll see in the very next verse that Christ is the model for leadership within the family. So this is, this is not speaking of the, the husbands as being lords, it's to the Lord 
singular. You've got wives, husbands, and then to the Lord. Um, wives can be certain. All of you can be certain. And, I, and I, I'll joke it aside. I know some of you had good marriages. Some of you have had poor marriages. There's, and so you know, I hope you know by now, that there's one thing you can be certain of when it comes to leadership. And that is that Jesus Christ is infallible with regard to what he tells you to do. Never makes a mistake. Never gives an improper command. His, his orders, if we could put it that way, should never be questioned. But unfortunately, that can't, the same can't be said for human husbands, of which I am one. You know, I'm fallible. There have been many times that I've made decisions that, that weren't necessarily the best ones. And, and uh, so sometimes wives have a, even a responsibility to question certain things, but, but they also have the responsibility to submit unless... The thing that the husband wants them to do is either overtly sinful or perhaps illegal, something along those lines. So there are obvious times when you say, no, 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 I'm not going to, I just cannot do that because I'm, I'm submitting to a higher authority, which is an obviously higher authority. That's what I want you to see. It's, it's, it can't be just one of these matters of opinion. It needs to be something you, because if you're going to take that route, you need to be able to say, I'm taking that route, honey, because this passage says this, and if you can, you know, Sit down with me. Show me that that passage doesn't say that. Let's talk to the pastor, and you know maybe and let's let's see if that passage doesn't say that. But it sure seems like it does. But see, with Christ, you'll never have that. So wives are submitting to their husbands as to the Lord. There will never be a time when a command of Christ can be resisted on the same grounds that perhaps it's sinful or perhaps it's illegal in some way, which would be. One and the same. So I, I want to I say that up front because it, it often happens. It's happened in our ministry, particularly in the first few years of our ministry. This was a very hot-button topic. Um, well, what if my wife, what if my husband wants, tells me to do this or to do that? And, uh, you know, the things that they were, said were, were per perhaps obviously sinful. Well, then the answer would be you have to follow the higher authority. In the same way, if a government ever insist that you do something that is overtly sinful, then you have to follow a higher authority. Now, it doesn't necessarily mean if they allow something that's overtly sinful that you go and, and do violence to, for example, if our government allows homosexuality in certain areas, it doesn't mean that you go do violence to homosexuals. You, you see what I'm saying? There, that's not, you're not being forced to become a homosexual. You see what I mean? So there, there's a, a little difference there. But, um, but I hope you see that Christ is the standard. Wives, be subject to your own husbands as or as unto the Lord. The, the verb hupotasso, H-U-P-O-T-A-S-S-O, means to submit or to subject oneself to another person who has legitimate authority in that particular situation. Now, all of that is important. The verb hupotasso means to submit or subject oneself to another who has legitimate authority in that particular realm. For example, if a teacher in a classroom says there's to be no texting or no talking during the class, it's incumbent upon the student in that class 
to refrain from texting and talking in the class. But let's say the student, the class is over, the student has moved out to the parking lot, and when they're, when they're in the parking lot on their way to their car, they're either talking on their cell phone or they're texting someone. Well, that's outside the realm of that teacher's legitimately delegated authority. So the teacher would have no right to come up to the student and say, I said you can't text, unless there's some rule in that school, some weird rule that the teacher's authority extends to the parking lot as well, and I don't know of any school that's like that. Uh, maybe some that y'all have gone to, I'm not sure, but, but uh, even there they didn't do that. So, so there's, there are legitimate areas of authority, and it doesn't extend to the parking lot in this particular example. So if a teacher comes up and says, you're not supposed to be texting, then all bets are off. You know, that, that teacher's acting outside of his or her realm of authority. It doesn't typically extend to the parking lot. In the same way, a police officer, if they're in the course of duty, if they're in, in the process of doing their job, and they're out on the street, and they're chasing down a bad guy, they may whip right around you with their lights on, turn right in front of you, and if you may have to slam on your brakes, and they may zoom down the very next road. Well, they're operating within the sphere, I assume, of police policy or whatever, within the sphere of their authority, and it would not be a wise thing to, to honk or to stick your fist out the window or anything. The wise thing to do would be pull over, let them by, let them do their job. But if that same officer was to later approach you in Randall's and, and sw swoop in front of you with his groceries and zoom through the line and knock you out of the way because they wanted to see the first quarter of the Texans game, well, you see, then there may be worse. Now, if they've still got their gun with them, don't do that. But I'm just saying that, that would be an abuse of authority. You see, because the authority doesn't extend its legitimate authority in one area that doesn't extend to all areas. There's only one person that has authority in, in all areas, and that's Jesus Christ. Now, this is really, really important because there is a, this is an area where the, where the idea of legitimately delegated authority has been misunderstood and, and abused. Let's take the example of a pastor at a church. A pastor at a church has legitimate authority within the sphere of the activities and the functions of that church, not necessarily in a building, but as 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 it relates to the function of that church. The pastor of the church has no authority in an academic classroom. If they walked in, and they, they'd be just like any other student. And the pastor of the church has no authority within your marriage, in the household, or with your kids, uh, except, in, except if something's happening on the church property where someone in leadership would have to say, you know, if there was some quarrel or something going on, you need to stop that. But I'm just saying, we need to keep these spheres of authority straight. That's what Paul is talking about in verse 21. He says, be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. It's within the sphere of that legitimately delegated authority. For example, if um, we have a, I won't say his name for the tape, but we have a police officer here tonight. That police officer here tonight has authority within the realm of his office. Here tonight, he's sitting as a, as a very courteous student. And he's recognizing my leadership. You see the difference. It's, it's spheres of authority, and it may be different at, di at different times. I understand Ronald Reagan when he was still alive. I, I talked to his pastor about this. We had an opportunity to do that a few years ago. And he, he said that one of the things he loved about Ronald Reagan when he went to the, his church out in California was that Reagan did everything he could not to disrupt the service when he came in. He would wait till everyone else was in. 
And instead, instead of sitting on the front row where everybody could see that he was there and he would get pats on the back for having been there, he made a point of sitting with his secret service detail on the back row, and he listened as a student without any kind of leadership ability, and he learned the Word of God, and he was a member of that church for that time that he was there. I remember him telling us that. And it was, a, it was a wonderful and a beautiful thing because even someone who was a former president, and while he was president too, respected the fact that in that particular setting, he had no leadership structure, at least not within the sphere of what was happening at that local church. So submission to authority must be limited, listen carefully, it must be limited to its appropriate context. And when people start to try to expand leadership authority into context in which it was never designed to be, that's where you get into trouble. And that's where cults start, or at least one of the places where cults start. And we need to be very, very careful with that. Now, verse 23 offers an explanation as to the basis of the leadership structure in the marriage relationship. The basis of the leadership structure in the marriage relationship for or because the husband is the head of the wife as Christ also is the head of the church, he himself being savior of the body. Christ is the head of the church in like manner. The husband is the head of the wife. I remember doing a, a paper on this in, when I was in seminary there in certain classes. Um, you have to do exegetical papers, and this is one of those passages. I don't know if they still do, but a portion of this passage is one that they bring up, and it's the choice that you make. And as part of the exegetical paper, you typically pick one section of the paper. You have to pick a problem area, a problem where there's been disagreement, and you have to work through it and use different sources, and they want to see that you can do a, a somewhat scholarly research. Well, I had this particular uh, assignment, and I was in the library at Dallas Seminary one day, and I was working on this word head, kephale, or kephale. And I was doing some research on it, and a man named Harold Honer, who was the head of the New Testament Department at the time, many of you know him, mentor of Will Johnson, one of Will's mentors, with the Lord now. Uh, Dr. Honer came up, and, and we had a really good relationship. And, and so he stood over the little kiosk that I was uh, working in, and he said, Hey, Bruce, what you working on? And I said, I'm working on the Ephesians passage, Kephale, and, and uh, you know, headship or source or, or whether it means authority over. He's exactly what his headship means. And he said, well, what, what do you, how do you take that? And I thought, well, that's kind of neat. I had a New Testament department asking me how I took that. It's pretty good. So I explained to him the whole nine yards. I just taught him what Kephale meant. And uh, I said, when I finished the discussion, I said, it obviously means authority over. There's no way it means source. He said, okay. And then in his little wry way, he, he said, well, that's really, really good. There's also a, a couple things you might consider. And then he started listing with perfect accuracy citations from journal articles and uh, books and things that I never even thought of. And as he was listing these things, I, I remembered that, that he was in the process of writing uh, probably since Calvin's time the, the most serious commentary on Ephesians that's ever been written. <laughs> And if, if you look at his commentary today, he's got, I don't know how many pages are devoted to this one particular issue. So I'll never forget that whenever I whenever I taught this. Uh, so I, I summarized it. There's a lot that goes into it. But but the term kephale or head, I mean, it means literally head. But metaphorically, there are two choices you have to make. It, 
the argument is, does it mean source? In other words, for the husband is the source of the wife, as Christ is also the source of the church. Or does it mean leader or authority over? And there are only a few people that want to insist that it means source. These are people that would call themselves Christian feminists. And we're not talking about just being feminine, but we're talking about a, a militant type of Christian uh, being a militant feminist. Um, they would insist that it would say source because somehow that they think that if it has authority over it, it means that the husband is superior in an, in a, in an ontological way to the wife, and that's not true at all. Uh, the meaning source is actually extremely rare in Greek literature of all kinds. It really is only used once, to, once or twice to my knowledge, and that usage goes 500 years before the time the New Testament was written, and it was in the plural. It's not in the singular. It has to do with the source of rivers, sources of rivers, and it, it just doesn't work. The word means leadership over or authority over, and that's the meaning in the context here. Well, you could actually see how one can make a case that Christ is the source of the church, if you wanted to do that, but it's going to be really difficult to make a case that the husband is the source of the wife. It's a meaningless expression. So we want to we want to take it as it should be. Actually, this this draws our attention back to chapter one, verses twenty-two and twenty-three, speaking of Christ, and he put all things in subjection under his feet, and he gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. This is speaking about Christ and his leadership or his authority over the church. So when we get to Ephesians chapter 5, we see that the wives are, wives are to be subject to their own husbands as to the Lord. And the further explanation is that the husband is the leader or the authority over, if you don't like the word leader, the authority over the wife, just as Christ is also the leader or, I hope you don't mind the word authority over when it comes to the church, he himself being the savior of the body. Christ created the church, and he saved the church, giving him the right to lead the church. Now, what we have here is a hint of what is to come next week. Because Christ is the leader of the church, and how did he demonstrate his love for the church? He gave it all up for the church. And when you talk about being self-sacrificing, that's where it is. He, he gave the ultimate in sacrifice. Most husbands won't be called upon to, to physically die for their wives, but they may be called upon to make smaller sacrifices for the comfort, the care, and the well-being of their wives. And it's true. Sometimes, uh, yeah, there have been husbands that have been taken advantage of. There have been wives that have had poor leadership from their husbands. It works both ways. But rather than arguing about that, wouldn't it be better to see how it's supposed to work and how do we keep our way pure by living in according to the way God prescribed? Wouldn't it be better to do that? So we see at least tonight in this introductory portion the wife's responsibility. Um, and then in verse 24, as the church is subject to Christ, and aren't we? Yeah, we are. So wives ought to be to their own husbands in all aspects. Now, we're, again, we're going to see later, in case you, you happen, not to be out of, happen to not be here next week or be out of town at some point, Christ leads the church in a perfect way. He never, he never does anything with regard to the church out of a selfish motivation. 
That's for his own glorification, but that's in the interest of honesty. Husbands, you have this, we all have this responsibility as well. Now, tonight has been primarily about the wife's responsibility. This is it. Now, this does not mean, and I have to say it every time I teach this, either whether it's in a, a wedding or whether this is an expositional setting, because one has leadership over someone else doesn't mean that they are innately superior to that other person. Leadership doesn't mean superiority, and I hope we've already seen that. Leadership means that you have responsibility to lead in that way. And a lot of people, once they see what the responsibilities of leadership are, don't want any part of it. Because it's, there are heavy responsibilities in regard to this. I, I like the old Bill Cosby routine that when, when once he sees what you know, his, his wife had to do, you know, he made a thorough mess of it because he didn't want that job. You know, he's seen that job, he doesn't want it. He'd just soon have her have it. You know, if, if, if you have to do all those things, if you have to lead in that sacrificial way, then he wanted nothing to do with it whatsoever. So here tonight, we have the first in the installment of what it means to, to be in a leadership structure within the family. We've started off with the wives because that's the way the, the text starts off. Now next week, and I hope if you're a husband, you have the courage to come because we're going to see that if you are in leadership, you have the responsibility. If you're going to take the leadership role, you have the responsibility to lead as Christ led. And if this was to happen this way, wouldn't the dynamic of marriage be absolutely wonderful? Now, no marriage has this happen in a perfect way. There's always going to be times when things get off kilter. But when they do, if we could come back to this point, whether there's a discussion that ever takes place or not, in some marriages there's no discussion that has to take place. Both of them just realize we need to get, we need to get back to, to having the word of God be central. But if you want to solve almost all problems that come up in marriage, not necessarily all of them, I know some, some are exceptions, but if we got back to this principle, things would be a whole lot better in our lives. How can a young man, how can a young woman, how can a middle-aged older man, a middle-aged older woman keep their way pure? By keeping it according to thy word. Whether we like that or not, whether it's culturally sensitive or not, that's what the word of God says. What it's incumbent upon us to understand it, all of it, not just little pieces of it, not twisted pieces of it, but to understand it and then to live it out. Next week, we'll talk about the husband's responsibility. Heavenly Father, we, we realize that you prescribe these mandates for our own good. We thank you that you've invented the institution of marriage to glorify yourself, to preserve humanity, and to, for the benefit of both husband and wife. Help us, who, those who are husbands, to love our wives like Christ loved the church, the one with whom we are perfectly equal, but for whatever reason you've decided to, to put us in a position of leadership. Help us to understand that responsibility and to execute that responsibility with the utmost love. And for those who are wives in that particular relationship that we call marriage, uh, I, I do pray that, that as wives they, they would be able to do the same, to, to, to submit to their husbands as unto the Lord because of you, because that's what you want. It's not easy, Father, so we know that the Holy Spirit would, would help us to do this. We ask for that ministry in our lives, and we'll ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.